can't we all just get along? In a household of constantly quarreling brothers, those were words I often heard my mother say. And in my house, we didn't just argue about trivial things like what was fair or who changed the rules in a card game. We had conflicting religious and political ideas, too. There were ongoing disputes. Mom was a diehard Presbyterian. She was a member of the choir. Her mother played the organ, and her father was a deacon in the church. But she was happy to sacrifice dogma for karma when it came to her Catholic husband and opinionated children. Then, in the midst of it all, as we were growing up, there entered some discussion of ethics from a philosophical perspective between me and my older siblings, as if that could settle certain scores. We never finished what we started on that, but today we'll pay some tribute to mom by continuing that hopeful conversation in the search for the true meaning of happiness. Ready? You've discovered the Pemology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness, one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pemology Society's founder, James Carvin. Assuming you've been following this blogcast episode by episode, like I've repeatedly recommended you do, you'll recall I've been mentioning theories of theories as an ecosystem of theories, and today we'll start to explore this. I should state up front that the idea of an ecosystem of theories is a little different from the getting-along theory of John Rawls. Rawls was a teacher at Harvard whose political philosophy became the backbone of today's liberal political theory. Rawlsians, as they're called, believe that practical politics will find a common denominator that can glue us together so long as it doesn't expect agreement on comprehensive doctrines. As an example, this would mean that Presbyterians can agree with Catholics to disagree about the Pope since that's part of comprehensive Catholic doctrine that simply can't fit into a Presbyterian's worldview. But they could still work together on points that they do agree on. For instance, they could support laws that protect citizens from killing each other in the exercise of their individual liberty. Rawls also very explicitly believed that we could all agree to policies and law that helped the poor and the disadvantaged. For Rawls, Helping the disadvantaged was of the highest priority, no matter how much those policies might adversely affect the wealthy. On the flip side, helping the wealthy is perfectly wonderful for Rawlsians, so long as it helps the overall welfare of the least advantaged. Certainly keeping an eye on the least of these in our midst, as Jesus might have put it, is a point on which both Catholics and Presbyterians would agree. It's a common denominator. I regret that Rawls deserves more attention than I have available to give here. He was mainly concerned about the poor having a voice in government and about their access to participate as civil servants and with equal opportunity generally. He wasn't an egalitarian. His concern with outcomes was limited to how far up we could bring the most disadvantaged people. Rawlsianism matters because at the heart of pomology, is the maximization of awesomeness, right? Imagine a world in which the many are flourishing, but a few are hopelessly trapped in poverty and misery. Would that be a society experiencing the maximization of awesomeness? 
Well, certainly not if those fortunate enough to be flourishing had a conscience. Reminds me of the curious image of myriads of the redeemed worshiping in heaven, somehow maximizing their own everlasting beauty and glory while yet being oblivious to the permanent torment of those in hell, many of them their own former friends and family members. Sadly, today most are in the poverty trap, living paycheck to paycheck like I've been doing, if not on the dole, while the few are flourishing. Either way, pomologists will likely be very sympathetic to Rawlsianism. Awesomeness is not oblivious to suffering. It's aware. But pomology isn't Rawlsianism. There are other values at stake. To start a description of them, I'll inventory through some competing ethical, cosmological, and political theories. I'll begin with an introduction to Aristotle's values ethics, since many in my audience are not philosophers. As always, my assumption is that you're interested in awesomeness. The Pomology 101 course and supplementary Season 1 blogcast, which this is a part of, serves as an introduction to philosophy through a sort of side door, where our focus is on the philosophy of awesomeness specifically. So back to Aristotle. Ethical theories are types of comprehensive doctrines. We'll find in Aristotle just that. Rawls excludes comprehensive doctrines from the conversation for the sake of designing an ideal political system for a constitutional representative government. Constitutional government may be essential for optimizing awesomeness, but when it comes to comprehensive doctrines, pomology is likely to look for systems that balance and offer representation of what we truly believe in a more parliamentary fashion that avoids some of the pitfalls of two-party or uniparty systems. As well, beliefs change, so pomologists might be cautious seeking to temper fluctuations in baby steps of experimentation, referred to as pamelonomies. We wouldn't exclude comprehensive doctrine from the conversation in any of that. Furthermore, and this is something of an indictment on our modern technological age, we wouldn't want history to be buried or revised to suit the whims of successive generations as we select what we preserve, even if a majority was offended by it. And neither would we want cultural groups with whom we disagree to be suppressed. A common denominator approach might be oppressive both for making the best of today's competing values and for applying majority sentiments to how we view the past. History's voice should be as authentic as the many voices of the present. Balance is not a reduction to what we hold in common. It's something that involves what I'll call street smarts. This brings us to values ethics. Aristotle believed that ethical rules should be flexible. A good sense of how each situation might apply as he saw it would need to be acquired with experience. Spelling it all out with specifics would be futile since new situations would always arise that would make exceptions to the rules the better choice. And here you have it. The Greek word for practical wisdom, phronima, might be thought of as street smarts. There are some things you just can't learn in school. For Aristotle, this held for individuals and also for whole societies, which is why in the first book of his Ethica Nicomachia, he made it clear that politics was a higher value than personal morality. I don't know if I agree with that. 
I think most of us would take a both and rather than an either or approach. We're aware that you can't legislate morality. You can, however, prevent people from injuring each other through law, and it's also true that the decisions of kings have relatively profound consequences compared to those of the masses. But as to the power of the individual, a pomologist might readily believe that in the kingdom of countless heavens in the multiverse, small actions reign over larger domains than first meet the eye. The power of what might seem to be an uninfluential person of no means, in prayer or in action, may easily exceed the power of a king to affect just one world for good. Quite frankly, Aristotle wasn't thinking about that. If Plato was a rationalist whose mind was always in the heavens, like mine is, Aristotle was an empiricist whose mind was very much set on things within one observable world. And that's not the only difference. In fact, the whole idea of virtue was different for Aristotle than it would be for most of us. In Aristotle's day, virtue was a sort of manly thing. I won't suggest that we embrace it as it was. I'll stick to what we can glean from it. The Greek word for virtue, areti, refers first to excellence and goodness, but it was often used to mean manliness, rank, prowess, and valor. Honor and respect was a soldierly thing back in the 4th century BCE. Not much associated with the feminine first or foremost. The Greek idea of virtue was about character, primarily manly character, or the character of a successful state, and that wasn't run by women. It might have to do with reputation and dignity, equally important to women, but it was also about fame glory, and distinction, which didn't involve females much at that time. Now, Aristotle's specific sense of virtue was traditional for his day and age. It might be an elaboration of the values that were highlighted by his mentor, Plato, that we might find in a work of his called Politia, better known as the Republic. The Republic is styled as a dialogue with Socrates. So if anyone suggests the values that Aristotle raises don't have some rational foundation for being singled out, The answer is tradition, a patriarchal tradition that we won't attempt to carry forward here. Still, we should look at what the golden mean of virtues, the way we summarize his sense of virtue is, and ask ourselves how that idea of virtues being best discovered by some middle ground might apply today. Aristotle singled out 11 specific virtues, ambition, courage, temperance, liberality, magnificence, magnanimity, truthfulness, wittiness, friendliness, modesty, and righteous indignation. I'm not going to cover them all here, and I'm not going to repeat his examples. If you care to, you can read them for yourself following the links in our blogcast transcript. But let's just do a thought experiment for a moment on some values on this list that are still highly prized today, maybe even more so, that might make the idea clear. The idea is this. There's a deficiency or an excess. And then in the middle is the golden mean of virtue. Let's take the examples of truthfulness, weediness, and then friendliness. We'll start with truthfulness. If a person is insufficiently truthful, they'll lie for bad reasons. Manipulating other people selfishly, cheating, stealing, causing damage to people's reputations, or getting them in trouble legally by making up hearsay or twisting facts. But if they're too truthful, they'll give away secrets, they'll spread gossip, they'll hurt people's feelings, 
they'll neglect kindness and sympathy. Or they might just be annoying people by always providing more detail about things than you have time to listen to. Some people are grammar Nazis, as they're now called, ever-changing the subject in conversations because of accuracy. That doesn't really matter as much as what someone really wanted to say. It's an interruption, and it takes a lot of life lessons to master the art of acquiring the virtue of truthfulness, seeing here how complicated it can actually be. Truth does matter, but never in excess And if at any point I suggest that Aristotle's ethics are situational, what I mean is they're flexible. It might not even take someone schooled in the art to recognize a true virtue virtuoso. And I like that analogy of a virtuoso. The flexibility that I'm talking about is like a good jazz musician who practices his chord progressions and modal licks. He has familiarity with what goes with what, And he makes it up as he goes on, masterfully. So just as with a good musician, there are objective criteria for recognizing it. It's not necessarily subjective, and it's not situation ethics. That's why I'm not repeating his examples. It's about intuition and practice, and it might involve giftedness. Let's take another example. What about wittiness? That certainly involves giftedness, and again, the virtue lies in the middle. If a person has no sense of humor, they'll react inappropriately when people around them make jokes. They'll be easily offended, not interpreting what's being said as it was intended. That's going to cause quarrels and disagreements. Plus, if they never laugh, they'll be unhappy, and if they never make jokes, their unhappy demeanor will likely bring people down. But somebody who enters a room with levity, you know the kind of person I'm talking about. They can lighten up a room in an instant. They're charming. This can be a wonderful virtue. And it can be acquired with experience. But again, extremes are to be avoided. If they never stop joking around, they may never take a moment to express compassion or address a serious problem. They might never get a job. They might hang out in bars all the time. What if another person has a need? What if a person needs a hug because they've lost somebody that they love? Wit isn't always the appropriate response in every case. And taken to an extreme, wittiness is irresponsible, selfish, and could get a person put in jail or slapped in the face. Constant wittiness is also a sign of insecurity that can mask self-loathing or become such a constant habit that it prevents a person from taking the time for sober introspection and self-evaluation. My brother's godfather, believe it or not, was Jonathan Winters. My father was his AA sponsor. My father saved Jonathan Winters from committing suicide more than just once. Winters was Robin Williams' mentor in the art of improv comedy. Few of us know how unhappy Robin Williams really was. What Aristotle was objectively aiming at was avoidance of deficiency in virtue or excess. For most of us, the problem is with deficiency, but there can be problems with excess too. Now, friendliness is another example, one very relevant to our era, so let's look at that. Living in an age of social media, we know more than ever how careful we need to be both with who we are friends with and how much time we're willing to devote to them. 
We're also far more conscious today than we ever were of mutual consent when it comes to being friendly or making friends. When a solicitor calls with a friendly voice, as if they're doing us a favor by calling, we may just hang up on them. And that might seem rude. We could always make somebody's day, actually, by saying something nice even to a solicitor. But if we were overly friendly, we'd be on the phone all day long talking to strangers who were using us for the products and services they wanted to sell us. And actually, a lot of solicitors would prefer it if we just hang up so they can move on to the next call faster anyway. On the other hand, if we weren't friendly enough, we would be rude, not just to solicitors, but even those near to us. Grumpiness is a very easy habit to cultivate. So the real virtue of friendliness will find that middle place, not some mathematical compromise to be sure, but a wisely learned middle ground between the extremes of letting others use and abuse us in a variety of ways that we could be too friendly we'd find a healthy place in the middle where we offer kindness and cultivate enough relationships at various distances that we would realistically have time for. Some of my friends don't require much maintenance at all. They're always ready with kindness and with love. Since I don't have much time to invest in friendships, those are the types of friends that I'm happiest to find. Most people have very few very good friends. Many of those friendships are dysfunctional, too. is isn't just solicitors who use us. It can be people that we haven't wisely chosen. Our over-friendliness may take the form of an unhealthy loyalty. It may be holding on to toxic relationships. It might be streetwise for us to back out of certain friendships. And then again, true excellence might call for holding on even to toxic relationships in particular cases. Maybe an ever-nagging disabled mom, for instance. It's a no-brainer that unkindness is rarely demanded in the grand scheme of maximized awesomeness. Grumpiness and lack of courtesy are simple, objective measures of friendliness. Just like when somebody plays a bad note in music, you know when you're hearing it. So what takes more skill is realizing when tough love is called for. Maybe that would be a solution for your OCD mom. But there are also subtle examples, such as unfriendliness by omission. Have you ever ignored a lonely person at a social function and then realized it later? Maybe you lacked the necessary courage to be friendly and you felt bad about it. Some people, particularly in business functions, might feel tremendously relieved to have someone pay attention to them. No long-term commitment is required. Picking up body language is part of acquiring that virtue. You don't always know, if you don't at least introduce yourself. The virtue of friendliness breaks through your own shyness and comforts strangers. It empathizes, but it also very quickly intuits whether that other person's engagement with you will mean more than you bargained for in your initial courageous, thoughtful approach. Friendliness actually means being very good at reading signals between the lines. Maybe you should avoid some people based on their body signals. Once again, it takes practice. What Aristotle termed phronima. Phronima is not the intellectual wisdom that solves cryptic mysteries and complex problems that you'll find in so much of philosophy. That would be Sophia. Phronima is practical wisdom. It's street smarts. The maximization of awesomeness involves street smarts and some masterful improvisation. And for that matter, Aristotle had his own version of maximized awesomeness, Evdemonia.
Hebdomania is happiness. And it's more than happiness. It's a peaceful sort of abundant happiness through human flourishing. It's found in achieving an ideal. It's found in success, very specific type of happiness. For individuals, it comes from that matured character that's acquired through practice that we've been talking about, usually by following after other people's good examples. For societies, they can also mature and grow in character the same way, by valuing previous successes and failures until they flourish. And just as with individual virtues, there's a streetwise golden mean of values to embrace, the way societies form and act as institutions is best carried out with the same sort of middle way wisdom. So I should mention a much more recent philosopher here on that note, Edmund Burke. Burke was famous for contrasting a certain successful revolution that had taken place in England with the idealist revolutions in France that had been encouraged by it. He was highly critical of those preaching revolution who had seen successful regime changes in other countries. Overthrowing of governments was something that was best reserved as a last resort. New ideas embraced, especially by the young, were seldom well thought out. Sure, justice was in high demand. Sometimes it expressed itself with cries of tyranny and bloodshed. True that. But what was the cost of making change? The French didn't heed Burke's prophetic warnings. Destroying all the institutions that had previously existed, they were left in poverty, without hospitals, without food, without a means of income, disease-ridden, and with little means to rebuild. Things went from bad to worse through revolution. I'm not going to go into the details. My point is that Burke's conservatism would have spared the French a lot of misery had they heeded his voice. Too much change, particularly violent change, is something that a wise pomologist would avoid. We can envision a better world with a lot of clarity, yet be patient about finding the best path for seeing it through. That's what I'm working on filling out in great detail here. A united front or a vanguard movement? Shipping guns around? That's not likely to get any support from our members. We should instead progress with streetwise virtues, teaching by example, and invite prudence to come out to play, as the Beatles, I think, were suggesting. I grew up on the Beatles. If you want a revolution, all right. We all want to change the world. But if you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Prudence is a good word for it. I'm not saying it won't involve peaceful protests at times, but it involves a middle way. And that applies both for individuals and for societies. So, at the heart of Aristotle's ethics is character, something cultivated over time. And in fact, the very word Ethics comes from the word ethos, which means character, or refers to the character of a culture, as in the word ethnic. Good character takes time to acquire through experience and example and leads to a maturity. That's the end goal of life, a flourishing sort of happiness, whether it's for an individual or for a culture. Aristotle's idea of happiness was well considered and set against a backdrop of other theories of happiness. In classical philosophy, for instance, happiness was found in the freedom from things, for Epicurus. It was freedom from suffering and torment, you know, the Epicureans. For Epictetus, 
It was freedom from emotional attachments and passions. You probably heard of Stoicism. Stoics found happiness in simplicity. Nothing can bother a person who's free from all worldly attachments. But that's not what Aristotle meant by happiness. As he explained to his nephew, Nicomachus, it wasn't pleasure that made us happy. Pleasure is hard to sustain. Neither was it wealth. Wealthy people find many ways to be miserably incomplete. And despite the Greek sense of honor, it wasn't even fame. Particularly today, we know that famous people long for privacy. So how did Aristotle define happiness? Well, he was a functionalist who anticipated Maslow, I think, in separating three basic areas where we find happiness as human beings. First, there's the satisfaction that we find in safety and food for survival and meeting the basic needs and instincts of our bodies. Second, there are the emotional and higher needs that we often satisfy in relationships, in mating, in sexuality. But animals also have all of those. At the highest level, and what sets us apart, is the rational soul that seeks the fulfillment of its purpose. And its purpose is eudaimonia, to be happy. Let's do another thought experiment. Ask someone, anyone, what they're doing. This is homework. It doesn't matter what. When they explain to you what they're doing, ask them why they're doing that. When they answer why, then ask them why that's their explanation. Keep asking why after that. And ultimately, they're going to eventually tell you that the reason they're doing what they're doing is that they want to be happy. Whatever we do always seems to indirectly serve that purpose. So, for example, if you were to ask me why I produce blogcasts, I would tell you it's so that I can explain pomology. And if you ask me why I want to explain pomology, I would tell you it's so people would have a better vision of how the world could be. And if you asked why I wanted that, I would tell you it's because it's my desire to do the most good in this world that I know how to do before I die. And I think pomology, accurately understood, would bring about a lot of happiness for many people for ages to come. And then if you were to ask me why I did that, I would say it was because doing that would make me feel successful, like I had achieved my goal, and that would make me happy. I would endure an awful lot of hardship and sacrifice and even suffer a great deal as I struggled to make that happen. And similarly with Aristotle, happiness is found in success. It isn't necessarily a business or political success so much as it is the fulfillment of one's mission or sense of purpose. My own example should be useful to convey that. Have you traced yours? Have you sent me a link to your do-it-before-you-die list like I asked you to do? I really want to see that. I'll wrap up my discussion of Aristotle for now by pointing to something called teleology and what became teleological ethics. The idea comes from the Greek word telos, which means purpose, will, completion, maybe even perfection. For Aquinas, telos would have meant divine will or intention. The idea of whether something is good or bad in teleology centers on whether something is good at fulfilling its purpose. The purpose of shoes is to protect your feet. If they have holes or create blisters in your heels, they're imperfect shoes. They lack teleological virtue. It's valid theory. The purpose of a knife is to cut. If the knife's dull and can't cut, it can't achieve its purpose. That makes it a bad knife until it's sharpened. If a boat can't float, 
it isn't a good boat because it can't achieve its purpose, which is to carry people where they want to go over the water. Aristotle and Aquinas both applied that teleological principle to human beings. We were rational animals, and the function that set us apart was our ability to reason, and in particular, to seek the fulfillment of our purpose intentionally, rather than as animals do, reflexively, without thinking about why. And then I think that the middle road could have been applied here. Augustine and some of the other prominent church theologians, and then Aquinas after him, inferred from this that we were sinning if we enjoyed sex for any other purpose than reproduction. <laughs> Aristotle himself, not so much. Greek orgies were still quite in vogue in Aristotle's day. Sex, including same-sex relations and even pederasty, were normative in his day. What you might get from Aristotle is that while some things may always be vices in every case, as a general rule, avoidance of excess is where virtue will actually be found. But even more importantly, it's the end game that matters most. Success is a sort of double game of mastering character and mastering one's personal mission and the mission of the city-state. That's about all I can cram in about Aristotle here, and I hope I haven't done him too much injustice. I'm going to agree that many things do have purpose. I'm going to strongly agree that people can have a strong sense of personal mission, too. A well-defined course that would yield a sense of success that would make them happy, both in the journey towards achievement and in finally seeing it through but I'm not going to impose my personal experience on anyone else. I'm also inclined to think there are many things in life that have multiple uses and purposes. Function and purpose might in fact be very limiting concepts for determining what's right and wrong. And I think we start to see that problem manifest in the way that Aquinas and some of the other Catholic theologians had interpreted it. So who's right? In the final analysis, in seeking a balanced system of ethics, we might be looking at something like an ecosystem of deferring ethical systems rather than a unified theory. And it'll take some more episodes before I can fully describe that. In looking at such things as the purpose of sex, it'll be easy to see that some forms of incompatibility may preclude us from combining every ethical system into one. Just as friends can be toxic to each other, so can ethical theories. Yet, we may also find some prudence in the balance if we look long enough. Figuring that out, something that a long-standing test of time is much better at assessing than a blog cast or two. To the likely chagrin of many in my audience, I'm not going to try to settle everything here. I just couldn't. Instead, I'm going to continue an inventory of ethical systems because there's still more incompatibilities that we need to uncover. And in honor of my mom, I'd really like to see to what extent it's possible for us all to get along without dismissing whole sets of values long embraced and still embraced by many in favor of a possibly very destructive revolution. In our next episode, we're going to look at the ethical system that was developed by Immanuel Kant, which, dear to my heart, is based on pure reason. We'll contrast Kant's theory, commonly known as deontology, which is about duty, with a number of consequentialist theories of ethics. Ciao.
Thank you for listening to the Pemology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pemology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pemology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true. I've got good news for you.